Genesis Fortress on a Hill with Henry, Danny, Kagan, and Giovanni. Well, welcome everyone to Fortress on a Hill, a podcast about U.S. foreign policy, anti-imperialism, skepticism, and the American way of war. I'm Henry. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, my uh, pronouns are he and him. With me is Professor Bazanko here from the uh, University of Houston. He is a historian who specializes in the Vietnam War. And we are going to take some time here and talk about the end, how the peace treaty came together. Professor Bazenko, welcome to Fortress on a Hill. Uh, thank you for inviting me, Henry. It's a great honor and uh, a pleasure. I like talking about this and I really like what you're doing with, uh, with your podcast too. So it's, it's really cool to talk to you. Well, thank you. I really, really, really appreciate that. So, um, just to kind of give people a little bit of, you know, kind of taste of you and, and your experience and stuff, would you mind telling the folks how it was that you came to study the Vietnam war? Yeah. A long, long time ago. Um, I'm a, I'm a little younger than the actual, like, you know, veteran generation. So that wasn't an issue, but I, I grew up with that knowledge, you know, I knew that it was going on. There was something going on. I would hear people talk about it. And, um, then I began graduate school, you know, and always been interested in history and, and like the sixties, especially, you know, kind of every aspect of the music, the culture and all this. And then obviously the Vietnam War and civil rights and, um, in graduate school, I had a professor tell me about, um, Matthew Ridgeway, he's very well known, but this guy named David Shoup was the Colorado Marine Corps, but it wasn't like tales of heroism, you know, or anything like that. It was, these guys really outspoken about the Vietnam War. And they're like, you know, these are four stars and it just like, it like really like jolted me. It's like, wow, that's crazy. And I went, I studied it. Well, like James Gavin, you had like in the sixties, all these like retired four stars and, you know, people who were, you know, uh, really, you know, high up on the, you know, military chain of command who criticized the Vietnam War publicly. And so, um, that just really intrigued me. So I began to talk to people, especially veterans. And I was thinking of doing something on VDAW to get started. But as I went into the archives, um, and I started actually looking at that, for instance, I got, uh, John Kerry's FBI file long ago, you know, cool. Um, and I was going to do that, but then as I went into the, like the, the archives in the, in the national archives, the, separate, the state department archives and the military archives and places like, you know, the LBJ library, I began to see a pattern, which, you know, really surprised me of people, active duty people, you know, people in command, both in Washington and in Saigon who were really really bleak about the war in Vietnam, really pessimistic. And, you know, cause I had this image that they were all Dr. Strange or they were all Curtis LeMay. Everybody just wanted to blow everything back to the stone age. Sure. And what I found was really striking, you know, that in fact, like these folks were telling everybody from the fifties on, you know, Ridgeway and others, they weren't really, uh, out of, out of the ordinary. They were saying, look, this is not a great place to fight. You know, it's not the kind of war we need to be involved in. It's not really crucial to us. Um, the government there that you're backing is not popular. Whereas the, the, other guys are, what she meant is nationalists, you know, I mean, military intelligence, you know, at every level said, you know, if there's an election here, you know, Ho Chi Minh is going to win overwhelmingly. Um, it's a bad place to fight. You know, we're not trained to fight guerrilla wars. We're trained to fight, you know, in Europe with B-52s. And I mean, you know, throughout that entire period of the Kennedy years, you know, this is, I've been recently doing a lot of debating against the Kennedy conspiracy people who basically say Kennedy was going to get out of Vietnam. And I was like, no, I mean, the military didn't want to be in Vietnam. You know, he had plenty of ways to get out if he wanted to, you know, and, and I just kept seeing that and it, it struck me and I just kept digging further and further into the archives 
And I found, you know, just this incredible collection of, of documents from people at all levels, you know, village uh, advisors to the, uh, you know, deputy uh, chiefs of staff, the, the army chief of staff, Errol K. Johnson, Earl Wheeler, uh, uh, people in the Marines were, were really critical of the war. They believed that you know, the U.S. should be trying to, you know, actually involve, you know, get involved in some kind of real pacification program because the war wasn't right. Even LeMay, who's, you know, a hawk by any standards, essentially his idea was this war ain't worth fight, so we might as well just use airplanes so we don't lose anything in it, you know, which came from a very negative pr perspective. So that's kind of what got me into it. it. It, you know, as somebody, you know, from the left, it blew me away because I thought all generals were crazy. And I've actually ever since then now, for about 30 years, I've been studying people in the military, you know, uh, like Millie in 2020, you know, was really a, a fascinating character to me because of the way he took on Trump ultimately, right? And I mean, recently Millie has called for, uh, you know, uh, negotiations in Ukraine. Uh, and so, you know, it really challenged my view of people in the military. I thought they were all kind of gung-ho, but, you know, uh, as I talked to people, especially initially VDAW, you know, veterans who told me incredible stories and some harrowing stories. And then I started looking at the archives at these, these officers. And it just like really opened me up to, uh, I, I think an important way of thinking on the left too. I mean, not everything on the left is anti-military, every, everything about it. You know, I've been to plenty of peace, you know, uh, demonstrations and things where the deaths for peace and, you know, when groups like yours about basement there, I've had a lot of students who are vets who I, you know, really fascinate in, in a lot of ways. But um, it's it's really, I think, a vital part of the equation that that too often we don't really take into account. And, you know, as a lefty, I'm concerned about what bankers are doing, what corporations are doing, and, you know, why the United States is interested in lithium or oil or natural gas or whatever. But I think, you know, um, I don't do anything now without also looking at what the kind of military is saying and what, what soldiers think about what's going on there as well. Because I think just in, in every way, that's... Uh, you know, like in 2020, when, you know, Trump wanted to, was thinking about calling the military on the streets and, you know, the military's 40% non-white, you know, and I think that's something that, um, it really became, I think, a stabilizing force. That's some, and I think that's something I would have never thought about before this. So it's, it's really, uh, become an important part of my academic and, and political life as well. Yeah, it is, um, it is rather astounding, uh, uh going back and looking at, soldiers' recollections of, of what they went through and, and really being honest with people about how awful it was and in, 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 in so many different ways. I have uh, a um, new friend of mine who, sent, who I'm, I'm about two-thirds way through his memoir. He's a, he's a Vietnam vet. And, and just the, I, I, I've mentioned to him, you know, like the, the amount of bugs and rats and, and mm -hmm you know, monsoons and huge amounts of rain. And, and, you know, I, I, I spent my, my two years plus a little bit in, in the, in the desert, never really had to deal with, there were weather things, but they weren't things like that. As long as I could deal with the heat, it wasn't so bad. And, and granted, of course, the, you know, the, the, the terrain and the, you know, the local climate are only, you know, certain aspects, but to guys that are pounding the ground, it matters. It matters a lot. And, you know, dealing with the mud season, I know they've talked, yeah. I read something recently about that, that they're worried about the possibility of upcoming offenses involving Ukraine because they've had a little bit of an early spring. And that means that so much of their countryside there has just turned to shit mud that, you know, almost nothing can go through. Barely soldiers can walk through it if, if, if they try. Um, 
So I want we wanted to talk about the the end of the war, about the about the peace accords, about um, how you know how the political situation got us to that spot. And there's one thing I wanted to discuss before we do that, and that is specifically what we're talking about is about the the status of of dissent and troop morale that was you know that was happening during during those times, and certainly the role that they played in those things. And also the status of fragging, not uh, not specifically about that, but that's certainly included in the discussion, but also about the composition of the forces that were left during that time as the war officially ended, because it was it was when that actually happened, the vast majority of the army had already left Vietnam. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll let you tell it, please. OK, um, yeah, I mean, within. 18 months, I think Nixon had drawn down to about 40,000 troops and ramped up the air war. But, you know, in terms of the morale, I mean, this is an issue that uh, has really, I think, gotten a lot of attention in the last 20 years. So uh, the late John Prado, I don't know, did great work, just died like, a few months ago, did a great book on VBAW. He was very active uh, uh, with a lot of these guys, too. He was better. So, so there's been some really good stuff done on VBAW or of histories and documentary histories. But, I mean, that's something I kept coming up across in talking to people. And I think that's another part of the war that really has to be taken into account. Um, you know, you hear stories about World War II, the good war and all that. And, and Vietnam, and I'm sure there were plenty of people in World War II who wanted to get the hell out of there. You know, you, they were there for three, four years in some cases, right? But in Vietnam, you know, it was, it was a different war. I mean, it was uh, a, a war in which they kind of got a lot of media from about, they were reading about it. Uh, they were, you know, there was an anti-war movement at home communicating with them. Uh, they were reading about like Noam Chomsky and, and Howard Zinn and, you know, the Black Panthers and stuff like that. And then, um, you know, there's a civil rights movement going on. There's this kind of cultural revolution occurring and that is occurring in the army, you know, in the, in the armed forces in Vietnam and on American bases. Right. So you have this active like coffee house movement, the great documentary, Sir, No, Sir, which is, you know, fantastic. You know, covers that in great detail. Um, you know, a lot of these soldiers began to, to ask why, like, why are we here? Why are we doing this? We're going this far away. Whoever heard of Vietnam, you know, we're supposed to be fighting the Russians and saving the country from communism. And there's this little country here. It's, you know, mostly peasant agricultural place. Um, you know, at home you have a civil rights movement. And so, you know, you have this real tension in, in the army between black and white soldiers. So there's clearly racial issues there. Um, you have drug usage. I mean, there's, there's a debate over that. I mean, just anecdotally, pretty much everybody I've talked to you know, said that there were a lot of drugs in Vietnam, you know, it was just easy to get. And I mean, not just marijuana, but, you know, hard stuff, you know, heroin and opiates, because it's right there in the, oh, yeah. in the little triangle. And, you know, the great Al McCoy book, uh, The Politics of Heroin, talks about the, the, the role that the Southern government, does he have, you know, Ziam and then later, uh, only band two played it, you know, actually getting part of that, that trade, you know, we're, we're, we're invested in it. So drugs, you know, there's, there's a morale issue. Um, you mentioned fragging. And again, you know, the official numbers on fragging, I forget what they are. They're fairly low, but you know, again, anecdotally, I mean, man, I swear half the guys I talked to have a story, if not a frag where they, they wanted to, you know, do something for their commanding officer or, you know, they just didn't want to be there. And they were upset that these people were sending them into these hostile situations. So there's clearly a real problem with morale. I mean, uh, a, a, a kind of a historian, a colonel named Robert Heidel wrote a famous article, uh, in uh, Armed Forces Journal or Armed Forces in Society, I forget which is around 1971, where he talked about this, you know, he used the famous line from the comic strip at the time, Pogo, we have met the enemy and he is us. 
and he was talking about the breakdown of morale in the army. And I think, you know, just again, like, you know, I didn't see it in a lot of documents, but I, I have to believe that that was a major factor in decisions after a certain point. Um, you know, in the early stages of the war, um, African-American soldiers were being uh, killed and wounded in disproportionate numbers. Uh, Martin Luther King's assassination, I think, kind of was a pivot point because then you have, like, in, in some bases, you actually have, like, violence. You know, soldiers were putting up, you know, Confederate flags and black soldiers were. I think there's a, in um, platoon, I think you have a seat, something like that, right? And so I think at that point, you know, the, the, the army realized that it was having problems. And actually, this is around the time that proposes Project 100,000 too, which uh, the military hated that. I, military officers hated that. I, uh, you know, basically they thought you're giving us these guys, you know, nobody wants in society, you're sending it here for us to deal with, uh, you know, um, so they didn't, they didn't like it. Um, so you had these, you know, really serious, I think, problems in terms of morale, drug usage, racial incidents. Uh, and, and at that, I mean, it could be like over a fight over what you're playing on the jukebox, you know, uh, sure, whether you're sure. playing Motown or, or Roe Haggard, whatever. Right. And, um, at that point, I think, you know, uh, people in the government and in the military understood this is, this has to stop. And this is when you start to see the numbers adjusted. And then eventually they just go to a lot of the system, right. Uh, in order to, cause the draft attorney, obviously the draft deferment system was totally angled toward people who had some, you know, connections or privilege or education or whatever, right. You could, you know, get a letter like people like Bill Clinton or Dan Quayle or Donald Trump or whatever, right. Who had, they were in the Ivy League and they had connections or their dad had connections or something like that. And so I think by 1971, there clearly the government had recognized that they could continue along this road. I think, I mean, I think there are a couple of reasons Nixon wanted to get troops out. One, you know, clearly just because it, it probably would. And I think it did um, tamp down the level of anger inside the United States. I mean, the war itself made people angry, and I think people were really kind of repulsed by it morally. But at the same time, you know, a big factor, obviously, is that there are so many Americans being killed. And once you start bringing those troops home, you know, by, by 19, early, mid-1971, I think you have like 400,000 fewer troops than you had you know, in, in 1968. Uh, but also, I, I really think a big part of it was just that the, the, the soldiers themselves were no longer, they were risky. They weren't sure. I've often wondered, you know, when everyone said, we should have done this, or we should have done that, or we should invade it, we should have crossed the 17th parallel. And, you know, I've often wondered, like, if you told these guys to cross the 17th parallel, I'm not sure they wouldn't shoot you in the back, you know, or I don't know. I mean, that's, that was not a popular war. And I know so much of it is like, they were given a parade or they were treated badly when they got home. But, you know, a lot of vets I've talked to talked about, you know, basically what was going on in Vietnam. That was their, their issue. It wasn't like really when they got home. You know, it was what happened in Vietnam, the stuff they saw, as you said, you know, slogging through rice paddies and in the mud and just looking at video of that. I mean, it makes me cringe, like clench up. I mean, that's just, you know, uh, just rough. And something else that always struck me too, and if I'm talking too much, just, you know, obviously cut in, but you're good, please. Something when I started talking years ago, you know, a long time ago, when I was talking to a lot of these guys. You know, everybody's, I think everybody's afraid to die, right? But one thing that like so many of them mentioned, even before that was like, I didn't want to kill anybody. And that really struck, you know, that was like really important. Like, I don't want to kill people. I don't even know. I don't have anything, you know, against them. And, and I think, you know, they said it was kind of a combination. So it really was, I think this kind of 
moral issue too. And I think what they have, the great Stottenland, who was a fantastic historian, a friend who died recently, wrote a lot about what he called moral injury, which is a little different than something like PTSD. And I think, you know, in retrospect, that's kind of what I was hearing from these people, that their own kind of sense of what they were taught, how they were brought up was being challenged there. You know, like they were being told to do things that, you know, when they were being raised, they were told not to do, you know, that you weren't supposed to do. And I think that's something that, and I don't know, I've never been a soldier, but I assume that's something that it's probably hard to grapple with if you, if you think about it like that. Yeah, the um, moral injury is something we talk about quite often. And, mm -hmm. and it's, it, it, I, I mentioned it about whenever anybody brings it up because it blows my mind so much, but uh, that still today, you know, the uh, Department of Veterans Affairs acknowledges moral injury. It says moral injury is a real thing. Uh, it absolutely contributes to suicide and, and worse PC, PTSD outcomes and things like that. But the Department of Defense does not. Uh, Department of Defense does not acknowledge that that moral injury is a thing. And I, I, I think that if people were really able to go and to understand that calculus about, you know, our, our future aspirations for war, that understanding that they can't see how their own soldiers can be put in a place that no one wants to be in and be able to, you know, and to, but for our government to be able to admit it. Um, and that's, and that's the, the much harder thing because you'll have like, you know, like even like before when PTSD wasn't, you know, wasn't as important as it was that it took however many different, you know, doctors and, and providers and however many ways to say, yes, this is real. It's hurting our guys horribly. We can't pretend that it's not a thing, that it doesn't happen. Um, so I, um. I wanted to talk about a, a, a comment I heard Noam Chomsky mentioned to you mm. uh, on one of your interviews with him. Great discussions, by the way. I, I really you. enjoy you guys getting to talk. They're really interesting discussions. Um, but he had mentioned specifically about the drawdown in Vietnam and how that you, as, as, a, as, a, as a president, as somebody who sends troops in, into combat, that you would not want to fight a colonial war or a really nasty war with draftees that it just, it, it's not, you're just not going to be successful at it for one. Um, and, and this thing is that like you saying about these exact people, you know, in, in terms of violating their own sense of moral injury, generally speaking, draftees don't want to hurt people. And there are times where we absolutely have to have those guys that at, at, at the, at the tip of the, <laughs> at the tip of the spear, so to speak. Um, but I'm, I'm fascinated by um, the composition of troops as the war drew to a close. Can you talk about that a little bit? Um, yeah, let me get a plug in. We talked to him. I'm a co-host of the podcast, Green and Red podcast, where we talked about with, with all about that. And we had actually shows on that, the end of the Vietnam War too. And we were going to have you as a guest. We're going to have you as a guest on soon. So looking forward to that. I'm really looking um, forward to that. Yeah. Um, the, it was a working class army. I mean, there's a, actually a pretty vulnerable called working class war. Um, as I mentioned before, you know, better than me, right? That the old deferment system, you know, was, was designed specifically, I mean, unabashedly it was designed to keep the, the so-called best and brightest out of the war. You know, you needed to save these people so they could be doctors and lawyers and engineers and businessmen here at home. So, I mean, Lewis Hershey, you know, you know really did. I basically said, you know, people going to the army are going to be the, like the, from the lower ranks, they're going to be people who aren't as smart and don't have the same futures. And so it's a clearly a working class war. You know, initially you had this bad racial, you know, composition as well. It was kind of, I think, evened out. But, um, you know, and I mean, if you look at like the states that suffered the biggest casualties in the Vietnam War, 
um, West Virginia, um, New Mexico, Puerto Rico, I think was actually higher than, than any state, if I'm not mistaken. So which states, they're Southern working class people, they're, they're Hispanic, they're African-American, you know, people who clearly come from lower economic levels. And so, um, you know, by the end of the war, um, you don't have as many like frontline troops in Vietnam, right? You tend to have more specialists and people who are in air control and, you know, air support and things like that. Like in the, the famous 1972 Easter offensive, uh, when the U S had to kind of send, throw forces in there because the Northern Vietnamese, which is the path was just cruising through the, uh, the central highlands. Um, that's mostly air support. You know, the famous John Paul Van, you know, kind of takes control, takes reins. Um, so by that time, but I think that's also a recognition, as I said before, I think that's one reason that Nixon drew these troops down so rapidly was because, you know, he knew this is a working class war. Uh, these people, you know, uh, you know, in the famous Martin Luther King speech, right? These people are being told to fight and kill and die together at Vietnam, but at home, they're not brought in to American society. They don't have these privileges at home. And they're being told, they're being told to protect, you know, democracy and freedom for the Vietnamese, but not for them at home. Right. And, you know, I mean, they're, 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 you know, these are, it, it's a younger army, but it's, they're smart and they're aware of that. You know, I've just seen so many accounts, oral histories, interviews, things like that. So by the end of the war, I think clearly, uh, Nixon and, and Kissinger, who clearly wanted to destroy, I think, Vietnam. You know, I mean, they just, they were committing war crimes. I don't think there's any other way to, to describe what they did in Vietnam. At one point, Nixon told Kissinger, what was it? Anything that flies against anything that moves as a work right there. And so I think by that point, and, and to get to, to Chomsky's point, I think there was a recognition as he said, you know, it may not be a colonial war technically, but the reality is, you know, inside Vietnam after French, after, you know, brief period of Japanese occupation, they think they're independent. They think they're sovereign. And then the Americans come back in and then they fight the war against the French. And then again, they think they're independent. They think they're sovereign. Then the U.S. at Geneva splits the country half, creates this country, invents this country. So, um, you know, I mean, it, it, in that regard, it's, it's kind of like a colonial war, right? You're trying to reimpose this Western control. And um, yeah, it is. It's hard to get morale. I mean, you're drafting people who, you know, uh, they're going because they're not enrolled in college or you know, they don't know anybody at the draft board or their dad doesn't have connections or something like that in many cases. You know, for some people, you know, it's it's an opportunity. It's a job. Sure. But, um, and there are people who are gung-ho there. You know, I mean, I, one of my best friends was a, a, a Dartmouth graduate who volunteered, right? And then he became a, a, an active member of GIs United Against the War. But, uh, uh, you Good know, there were him. people who, yeah, 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 great guy. Uh, kind of actually one of the people who really got me into this. So one of the first people I ever talked to in that fascinating guy. But I mean, there, there were people who, but even people, there were people who went there, you know, with the best of intentions, right? Born on the 4th of July, right? Who got there and said, this is what we were told. This isn't what they were telling us. We, we see, like, why do I hate these people? Why should I want to kill them? They're, they're, you know, I mean, I've seen Americans, they were making comparisons to like the war for independence, right? Like, you know, like we're like the British and they're like the colonials, you know? And I think, you know, and as Tom's pointed out, a war like that, you want people who are paid, people who don't have those moral concerns, right? Like the issue of moral injury, I, I didn't know about until Stott and Alice Lynn, and now I've read a, quite a bit about it. I'm so happy and fascinated that, that you've talked about that because, you know, I've always known, I think people know about PTSD, but I think that, that really struck me because like I've talked to so many people who never used that phrase, but like in retrospect, that's what they were talking about. Now it jolted everything that they had believed in and what they'd been taught to believe, just that kind of whole sense of 
you know, what they've been taught at schools or in churches or whatever, you know, basic values. I mean, you know, and it's mostly strength get things like Milai or, you know, the Tiger Battalion or whatever. But I think just, you know, from what I've heard on a daily basis, there were those kind of really difficult personal, you know, uh, dilemmas and questions you had to deal with. And so I think by the end of the war, the Americans understood that, you know, you could not continue to throw these guys into a meat grinder. Uh, you know, 58,000 is a huge number of men. I mean, the Vietnamese probably lost two or three billion. You know, um, you're asking them to destroy villages, to, to kill people. They're losing, I mean, you know, get to use Milai as an example. You know, I mean, just that, that is such a, a, a horrific, you know, scene. I mean, it's just, you know, everything about it, you have, you know, rapes and, and murders of children, and women, and, you know, and these are kids who are, I always say, it's like, you know, you're a 21 year old kid from Iowa, you know, and in your mind, you think, oh, I would never do, you know, but you're in this situation all of a sudden. And it's like, I don't know. I don't know. I've never been in a situation like that. I assume some kind of frenzy or trance, you know, takes over and, and you end up doing these unspeakably horrific things, you know, like the, um, the winter soldier hearings, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with, you know, where these veterans went around the country and collected this. It's, it's rough for me to beat you know, the accounts of stuff, uh, you know, and they're just, they're so widespread. And so, you know, I think, I think the people in charge of the war, you know, uh, uh, including the Nixon White House and Craig Abrams and, you know, the folks in charge, uh, 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 I forget the Joint Chiefs, the Ch JCS chair was after Wheeler, but you know, I think they understood that like you could not continue to push these guys into this situation that they were, it was going to, you know, the whole thing was going to break and you were having morale problems. You were having fragging problems. You were having, you know, clearly drunk problems. And so I think that's one reason you had to get as many troops out of there as possible. And then you go to the air war because, you know, um, as you know, there's always been kind of tension, right. Between like the army and Marines versus the air force and, you know, the air force kind of, they, you know, they, they fly, they drop a bomb and they go back to you know, Thailand and eat steaks or whatever was the kind of stereotype of them, right? And so I think, yeah, I think that that idea, I mean, I, I agree. I think, you know, it may not technically be a colonial war, but that's kind of what you're asking these American soldiers to do, to reimpose a colonial system. You know, granted, it's with the Vietnamese, but clearly this is a system that's clearly would operate within, within America's interests, yeah. right? And you're trying to impose a society on them, this liberal democratic society, whatever you want to call it, capitalist society that they don't have. There's no tradition of that, you know, so. Talk me through the, um, what the kind of composition of forces were on the ground. I know you had mentioned about, there was, uh, some groups of mercenaries that had, had been, I, I don't, I don't know who contracted them. I assume the U S did at one point or another, um, in terms of how far down the troop levels had dropped as the, as the signing of the armistice approached, um, you know, who, if, if you were a soldier left in Vietnam in, you know, late 1972, what would, uh, um, what would that have looked like to you as far as the guys you might have been fighting there? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of, by that time, I, I, I shouldn't use the phrase skeleton crew. I always call it that, which is not really a good phrase to describe it, but the essentials, let's, let's use that phrase. Sure. I think sure. by that time you have essentials, you have people who are protecting American installations. You have people who are protecting American documents. I mean, one thing I've talked to people who actually said that they physically saw people dump like pallets of documents and burn them so that the enemy would well this is probably be closer actually to 75 rather than 72 by 72 you have people who are you know kind of yeah because in 72 you know that that the end isn't as imminent as it would be in like sure sure in 1972 yeah the u.s knows it's getting out i mean the 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 agreement they finally 
they finally signed in January of 1973 had been on the table long before that. You know, Nixon had initially wanted to get out of the war uh, because he thought it would help him in the election. Then he realized it didn't really matter. And um, and then he just kind of actually doubled down. That's when we get the Christmas offensive. But by that time, um, you have significant air power there. You know, you have the the, the um, support for 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 air power for well, the B fifty twos are obviously stationed outside the country, but then you have air support in Vietnam. Um, you you don't have a lot of I think combat forces per se left. You have a lot of advisors. Like one of my good friends was an advisor in um, I think uh, in the in the area around Yadrong or maybe in Yadrong, I can't remember. Like in nineteen seventy one, nineteen seventy two, um, you know, training, um, you know, not not the search and destroy and, and you know the kind of that kind of stuff. By that time, you know, almost all of the the uh, attacks are going on through the air. Something else that I think is mentioning it. I know you probably know this a lot. And this something that I think always, even after all these years, the United States was attacking Southern Vietnam. You know, in 1972, most, you know, all of the U.S. attacks, well, I mean, there were bombing the North, like the Christmas bombings, but the vast majority of the war took place below the Seventh Parallel, right? In this country, the United States had invented, created, and was allegedly saving its allies. It was the United States that destroyed that country. If you ever look at a bombing map, the South has way more, you know, places darkened out than, than the North does. And so in 1972, you're getting a lot of that. You definitely have like in the, in the linebacker bombings that started in April and then in the Christmas bombings in December, where Nixon just unleashed fury against like Hanoi, right? And it's like hospitals and bridges and mine high fog, just like really did commit war crimes. Absolutely. There's no other way to, to look at that. I mean, Kissinger, I think, remarked something about that at the time. Um, but the, the forces then, by then, I think you have like the essentials are there. Um, they're not like out actively seeking combat. You, you still have them advising with, with Southern, uh, troops with, you know, with Harvard troops. And, um, you know, um, I'm not sure. I can't speak specifically about how many Korean troops or Australian troops were still there in 1972. There were, um, you know, some number, not nearly obviously as many as the Americans of Australian and Koreans there. Uh, you know, you did have, um, you know, it wouldn't be like, uh, you know, like Blackwater. In, in Iraq or Afghanistan, you didn't have numbers like that, but you did have some, you know, kind of, you know, uh, soldiers for hire kind of thing, but I don't think, you know, a huge number, but I think, you know, by that time it's, it's an air war. It's a war to create, you know, like ultimate devastation through the air. I always call it the empire strikes back, you know, like I think after Tet, you know, after that initial trial, the U S knew it wasn't going to win the war. And so it just figured, let's just beat the hell out of, make it impossible or that to really like enjoy their victory, which I think worked, you know, um, but, uh, you know, by the end, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a crew of essentials. Um, I mean, by, by the end of 72, I think it's under a hundred thousand. I'm pretty sure it is. But again, I don't have, like I said, I, I didn't think to look that up. I think the, um, what you were thinking about for Kissinger was, um, calculated barbarism. Yes. That was, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think one of the, yeah. It was, I mean, it was just, you know, stunning. They flew in 11 days, what they fly, like 4,000 sorties in 11 days. Or, I mean, just wow. around the clock, just stunning. Absolutely. You know, uh, the amount of tonnage dropped, uh, uh, I mean, it was just insane. I'm just like, I mean, in, in the, in the, in the entire Vietnam War, the U.S. dropped 4.6 million tons of bombs. Um, the, the, the area of Vietnam, the square mileage of Vietnam is about the same as New Mexico. So think of 4 million tons of bombs on New Mexico. Wow. 
there. And it was, uh, proportionately to what we had dropped in, um, world war two was still, you know, it, you wouldn't, I, I, I don't remember the specific numbers right now, but I know that in terms of overall bombs dropped, um, that, uh, proportionately that those kind not just the, the Christmas bombings, obviously, but the whole of, of the Vietnam war to, to look at them comparatively, you, you, how, how could they drop that many bombs on an area as small as New Mexico? Yeah. Um, and not understood fully exactly what they were taking on. I mean, it's like Curtis LeMay at, uh, you know, bombing in Dresden, you know, or, or, or even, even the other many, many huge bombings of, uh, Japanese homelands that weren't the nuclear bombs, but we don't, that that's something that history doesn't remember nearly as much. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a general Telford Taylor who was, I think he was a prosecutor in Nuremberg, wrote a book. Uh, uh, called Vietnam and Nuremberg, where he argued, he made that argument that, you know, what we're doing in Vietnam would have got these people in the dockets at Nuremberg. It was an, you know, an American general, a lawyer. Yeah. So the, um, I, I, uh, read a bit recently about how that the, with the signing of the armistice meant, um, huge reductions in the amount of aid that were being provided to Vietnam. And along with that, the, the AVRN forces that we, we were supposed to be supporting, that they were also dealing with atrophied numbers, dwindling supplies, dwindling munitions, it, it you know, it, for, for the people that we were supposed to be going to save, uh, it, it, it didn't look anything at all like that. Um, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, that's, that's, um. I mean, the U.S. continued to send aid actually more than they were allowed by, by the treaty. I mean, as soon as the treaty was signed, you know, everybody was violating it, you know, basically. So the United States continued to supply the South. But one thing I'm curious about, you know, which is not going to be in any documents, is just kind of the level of corruption that was taking place inside Vietnam by everybody. You know, so I'm not sure how much of that was sold on the black market, how much of it actually got through, how much of it was being sent to people who needed it. Um, I mean, the United States clearly continued to support the Vietnamese. It also had made a, 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 a secret agreement to pay uh, reparations, $3.2 billion, which Nixon immediately reneged on saying, no, you still have POWs and MIAs, which is a whole other issue, uh, right? But, um, uh, I mean, the, you know, it was finally Congress cut. I mean, Gerald Ford wanted to continue to send aid in, in, in April 1975, and Congress finally at that point put its foot down. So the United States continued to send aid. I, I suspect it's more like that it just never made its way through. Um, you know, uh, the whole issue of the corruption of the Southern government, I think on one hand, it's well established. On the other hand, you know, people get sometimes very upset to talk about it, but I, I don't think it's really kind of questionable. And so I suspect, especially later in the war, when everybody knew, you know, Southern United was going to be saved. I just don't believe that they thought, the Americans thought, I don't think Kissinger and Nixon thought they were going to win or that they could win. I think they just wanted to inflict maximum immense damage, you know, to kind of just, you know, kind of like salting the earth kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and, uh, yeah, I think the Americans talk a lot. I mean, they, I, I live in Houston, Texas, you know, and, and so there's a significant big Vietnamese community here. It's one of the biggest in the country, second or third biggest. And so, you know, not so much anymore, but when I first got here, I talked to people who were, some of them had been veterans in the army and some had been first gen you know, generation after that, the children. And 
you know, one thing I heard from a lot of them, and you know, I think they're absolutely right, is, you know, like you guys said that you were there to save us, but what did you do? You know, and I mean, I think there was a sense of betrayal. And I mean, I kind of get it, you know, and, and at the end too, you know, like you guys were there, you were supposed to save us. And what did you do? And, you know, I, what I never understood, you know, how that translated into a kind of a very conservative right-wing approach, you know, like the Americans kind of abandoned us, which I think they're, they're right. Um, and I think by the end of the war, 1972 through 74, you know, I, I don't think the Americans really cared all that much about the typical, the average Vietnamese. They were trying to preserve this thing. Who knows what you even call it by that time that they had created. You know, they were hoping to have this kind of economic partner or this outpost against communism, which I mean, they couldn't have believed that that was possible. I just don't see how you could, you could have read the New York Times and Washington Post that see the truth, let alone the documents that are available now online, you know? So... Um, yeah, I mean, I, th I think, I think the Vietnamese, the Southern Vietnamese have a legitimate reason to feel alienated and, and, and betrayed by, by their so-called allies. You know, I don't think the Americans, I mean, the Americans blew up their villages, you know, the Americans massacred their people. You know, you could have three Viet Cong in a village and you go in and kill 50 of them, you know, or 400 of them or whatever, you know, just based on speculation, bad intelligence or whatever, you know. Um, I wanted to ask about, um, this might be going back a little bit in time, but I wanted to ask about Bob Carey. I, I just got a chance to read just a few little tidbits about him today. The documents that were given to him at the end of the nineties about the, it wasn't the battle that, that he was very famous for. It was one that happened earlier. He finds out these documents about this battle that he was in long, long, long time ago. And it, I, I don't know that it, it, it completely, you know, um, flipped on its head the narrative that he gave people as he was recounting re that story. But there was certainly there was there was certainly some questions about it. And then magically, he doesn't run for reelection mm -hmm. almost immediately after that. And he was also in in the running for to be potentially run for president. He was going to go in the primaries against Al Gore. And immediately as I'm reading it and I've read, I've, I haven't read a ton of stuff on Vietnam, but I've read quite a few things. And, um, the one that I, I think has been the most illuminating in terms of what it really looked like to your average Vietnamese person during that time was, uh, kill everything that moves by, uh, by Nick Terse. Yeah. And so, you know, he had this, you know, this, this kind of apoplectic response, you know, is that they, they found these people that were in the middle of the village obviously hiding from the seals because he was he was part of one of the first seal teams and also this is true for a lot of other battles in vietnam is that 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 wasn't a concern of theirs that innocent people in the village were not a concern it went against previous reports that he had put in that they had surveyed the area they said it's all women and children and then they come back and they you know they pretend like it's 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 back at um you know back during a different time of the war um, I, I'm curious to know how, how you see that incident as a, a historian of Vietnam, just, just, yeah, just off yeah. The, your head. Um, you know, I hadn't thought about that for a long time. And as soon as you started talking about it, it all came back to me. And I, I remember that quite well now. Terry had, you know, kind of had this reputation as like the good guy, you know, this, the good soldier, you know, mm -hmm. and that comes out and, and, you know, you see it's, a, it's an atrocity, right? And, um, unfortunately, and, you know. When Nick Terse's book came out, those of us who study, we're not shocked by it. I mean, all of us, sure. you know, I think what he did was he collected all this stuff 
but all of us had kind of, it's at some point either heard or seen, you know, people who talked about that. Obviously, Neil, was very well known, but you know, one thing that like so many, I, I interviewed um, Seymour Hersh earlier today for our podcast, he wrote the Eli story, right? I mean, you know, you heard about stuff like that all the time in Vietnam, maybe not like Eli, which was so immense. But then after that, you start, you know, you saw the, the Toledo Blade put out the series about the Tiger Battalion. You started to hear all these other stories and the Bob Carey story broke. And this kind of like opened up the, the you know, this floodgates, right? And, you know, I talked to a lot of vets who had talents like that. And, you know, in some cases, it seemed like they just blocked it out and then it kind of came back to them. And you can see in some cases, I don't remember Carey's response. I, at the time, I, I was upset. I remember that. Like, I, I didn't like the way he handled it. But I've also talked to people who told me like harrowing stories. So much so that like, as somebody who's never been in war, my first thought is, are they making that up? Like, no, nah, that, that's, you know, like, you know, one guy was talking about pushing Vietnamese, you know, uh, suspects, really not even, you know, even though the, you know, they alleged Viet Cong out of helicopters, you know, they just mm-hmm. out of the helicopters. I was like, no, they think that, you know, like there's part of you that can't believe that. Oh, and absolutely. Then, it seems unbelievable. And then I talked to other people said, oh yeah, yeah, that was done. And then I read accounts like, oh yeah, that was done. It's like, okay, I guess, I guess it happened. Right. And so I've talked to, you know, and I've read plenty of accounts, absolutely, of that. But even at this point, after all these years, I'm still somewhat like, I don't know, not shocked. Like, how, how do humans do that kind of thing? You know, yeah. it goes back to that. Like, you're a 20-year-old kid from Ohio or whatever, and you're in Eli. You know, you're in the village. And you do things that you didn't think were humanly possible based on everything learned to that point in your entire life. And the people who put them in that position, you know, I mean, in a lot of ways, like VBAW actually kind of supported Cali to the point where they said, look, he's a scapegoat. He's just taking the fall for people higher up, put these orders in, made us do this. Yeah. You know, and I always wondered about that. Like, you know, it's just to send somebody out, you know, with kind of kill everything that moves, right? Um, you know, everything that flies against everything that moves, you know, that kind of thing. And then I know we'd like to say, oh, I would never do that if I were the position I would. You know, I would use orders, but when you're in that, who knows, who knows, you know? And, and so I've talked to a lot of people who, you know, that issue of moral injury, I'm really, uh, I'm really glad that that's kind of out there because I think it's so important because, you know, it's like, you know, you could go to a, allegedly go to a therapist, like you have PTSD, you could bark yourself, moral injury is something, you know, I think that's very deep and, and um, it's just so, so big. And it's something that like, you know, anybody who sees anything like that, any kind of trauma, right, is, is affected by it. But something like the Vietnam War, you know, is, is, is just really immense. And so, um, Carrie, I remember, you know, uh, I thought he was kind of glib about it. You know, he was kind of trying to move off his celebrity. Um, you know, the sad thing is now, 2023, I'm not sure anybody would care, you know. I mean, Trump was pardoning people who the military wanted would be in the, in the stock age, you know. Yeah. I think we live now in a world where, Pretty much anything is, is, you know, anything goes. And so that's the part that, you know, and another part, like I was thinking about this with regard to Ukraine, obviously there aren't American troops there, but at the end of every war, people come back, I, I don't know, I don't want to say damaged, but they come back different, right? And it's not uncommon for a lot of people to leave war and become part of these like right-wing movements, right? In Europe in the 1930s, the, the Spanish-American war, right? Uh, totally. You know, people came back, a lot of them joined the Ku Klux Klan and groups like that. And, you know, I, I think that that's something to be concerned about. Look at how many, you know, I actually have a 
very pretty good impression of the military, but there were a lot of soldiers involved in, in January 6th, you know? Uh, and so I think that, you know, like that's the one thing that not with regard to Americans, but what's going on in Ukraine, cause you do have kind of soldiers of fortune there. And I'm kind of like, uh, more than a little afraid of what's going to, what Europe is going to look like after this war is over and all these people disengage, you know, in Russia, they're using soldiers for hire, right? The Wagner, these other folks, right? And Ukraine has, you know, the Azov battalion and people like that. And so when the war is over, what are these folks going to do? Are they just going to go back and like, you know, become farmers? No, they're not going to do that. You know, this is the civil war. So I, I really am concerned about what, what that could lead to, because you often have this, you know, where people see this and they're just kind of brought down to different levels of, you know, being, and they come back and it, it, you know, they're, they're unable to escape. They just been part of it. And I've, I've thought about that with regard to UK and Russia a lot. I would have to say that, that in, in a lot of ways I do, um, agree with that assessment from BVAW that it, that, you know, that, that soldiers are, are, are cogs in the machine. And while we talk about, you know, that every co it's every cog in the machine is required to make the war machine work. So if you work in finance or you work in signal or you work wherever you do, you're still helping guys who kill people, kill people. It did, but uh, to understand, you know, to understand it from, from the strategic level where, you know, people like Westmoreland and others that got to decide, got to, you know, and, and is, you know, no, no different than, you know, generals of, of, of today, you know, is that the, um, you know, I, I saw a thing a while ago, it was about, uh, it was about the army inspector general and he was, he was giving a, a briefing to a congressional panel about, um, just officers that had gotten in trouble in, in, in the military and somebody somebody said that you know it's, it's like it, it seems to me like you feel like these officers are getting off a little easy they're not you know and 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 his response was that the army absolutely crushes uh general officers in that way that they're they're and i i think i i, I actually met the man i knew him when he was a colonel he was a, a brigade commander of mine i felt he was giving too much too much overhead cover for the kind of generals like, you know, Westmoreland, like people like Curtis LeMay, who, you know, did, you know, at their very place at the top of the, at the top of the pyramid, send all of these young people who didn't have experience at war mm. and had them do all these things. Now, of course, it's on those individual soldiers, Marines, whomever to say, this is not what I signed up for too much, object, maybe become a conscientious objector. Mm -hmm. But, you know, is that it, it, it's entirely possible that the, you know, the guys that, you know, had joined the army in, you know, the early parts of the Vietnam war that, you know, it's like, what, what if, you know, they, they had listened to the generals, what if after mm -hmm. Kennedy had been, had been killed that they had, that LBJ had listened to his generals and it did not happen. And those guys are, you know, they're playing, uh, playing Frisbee golf or some other, whatever stupid drunk game soldiers are, are, are playing together. Um, and that, you know, is if it was not for those, those decision makers and yeah. those people who said that it was going to happen is that none of those people would have been there yeah. and that would have happened. That's not to excuse, you know, their behavior back here by any, by any stretch of the imagination, but the worst of the worst is what happens when we say yeah, 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 yeah. Else, elsewhere. Yeah. Well, you know, in, in every situation and, and war is very different, obviously, right? That's duh. But in every situation, people who give somebody else orders to do something are held criminally liable, right? Yeah. Like from a mafia, I hate to compare, but you get my if I'm like, no, 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 mafia is a good example. Right. right. If I, if I tell you to go out and kill, you know, somebody from another family, like that's what me, you know, I, I'm charged with murder as much as you are. 
no, yeah. giving that order, that hit, right? And we do that in everything, right? Uh, you know, corporate CEOs get away with a lot too, right? But in the army, so, you know, like, look at Medina and Milai. Medina's the guy totally about to kill everything in boom, basically. I think it was Ernest Medina, wasn't it? But Cali's the one who got, not a lot, but he's the one who kind of took the fall for it, right? His name yeah, is yeah. honors. For the rest of his life, Cali would be associated with that. And, you know, he did it. And I mean, I, I'm appalled. I mean, it just like fetch when I, first time I ever saw him, I saw interviews with a brilliant documentary called Four Hours of Eli. And, but, you know, what about the people above that who created those conditions and made it inevitable that Cali and other people like Cali were going to do that? And, uh, you know, that's not to say, and I think that was BBAW's point about Cali. He's a scapegoat. What he did, what many of us did was wrong. But, you know, you're letting everybody above us off the hook. And, you know, in every other area in our society, people who do that are held liable as well, legally, you know, but, but not generals, obviously. And, um, you know, I mean, again, and, and, you know, I haven't talked to as many Iraq and vets, but I've had many, you know, at the University of Houston, some of my best students ever. I really, you know, I've been active in the community in any war and anti-imperial work. And so, and I mean, they have really harrowing stories there too of what they saw, you know, and, um, you know, if you have a, a, a bit of a soul or a conscience, it's going to live with you. I, you know, I, I've never been in it, but I just like seeing that, not just like their words, but just the kind of their eyes and the way they talked about it. You could see, you know, it hadn't left it. You know, you can understand that obviously with that higher could. So, so um, switching back to a little, a little more about the, the end of the war, um, you had mentioned earlier, and I'd like you to expand on this if you could, about that the that the agreements that were made in January 73 were essentially the exact same as previous agreements, very much similar to what happened with the Taliban and then yeah. our departure from Afghanistan. Can you talk about that a little? Yeah, I mean, the main points, the, there was a lot going on, right? But the main points were whether enemy forces would remain in southern Vietnam, in the RBN, below the southern Vietnam. They would because they're there. You know, they're not leaving. Right. I mean, that's just a fact, right? Who wouldn't, you know, you're basically winning the war. No one's going to voluntarily leave. And so that's one. And the other one is like, would they be part of the government? You know, they wanted to create, they had something called the provisional revolutionary government in the South, which was kind of the remnant, not the remnants, but it, it involved that like the old national liberation front of the economy. So they called the PRG, the corruption, which is like, those are the two, I think, crucial issues. Like who would be the government in the South and whether these forces would be allowed to remain in the South. Um, the United States, I mean, and these, these issues have been on the table really since 1969 and 70 when the box began, like kind of secret box, right? So this had been like, this had been like the main debate. There were other things, you know, like the basics of POWs and all that kind of thing, right? Which at the time was actually fairly easy to settle. Later, Nixon and Ross Perot resurrected it. But, you know, at the time it was actually settled fairly easily. And so by, uh, um, in October of 1972, Kissinger was negotiating with Le Dateau, and he even came out and announced pieces at hand. They had an agreement that the Northern forces would remain in the South. Because why wouldn't, right? No one's going to leave voluntarily when you're, yeah. you're winning the war. And then they agreed that there would be two separate, I think they called them administrative entities. So you would have the government of South Vietnam, Win Van II, and then you would have the provisional revolutionary government. When the Win Van II, the head of South Vietnam, found out about this, um, he issued a condemnation of the agreement. He called that they, he had 69 objections and then there were four no's and the no's were like no coalition government, no troops in the South. I forget what the other two were. 
the South Vietnamese thought Nixon had backstabbed him. And he kind of had because he was doing these negotiations without their involvement, right? Then they kind of backstabbed Kissinger by publicly saying, no, we're not going to do that. We have 69 objections. We have these four things we don't agree with. Kissinger then turned and blamed the North Vietnamese. He called them a bunch of filthy, tawdry shits. And then Nixon amped up the air war against the North. What they agreed to in January is clearly what they had on the table in October. And really, really similar to what had been there for 18 months prior to that. Nixon thought that, like, at that point, much of this was surrounding the election. This is Watergate's just, you know, finally started to happen, too. But much of it was basically Nixon thought that he would be on better ground running for president if the war was over or if the United States had achieved peace. He could run it. He had said, right, he was going to end the war, you know, peace plan, peace with honor. So, and, but then, you know, by October, he's so far ahead of McGovern. And all the polls, there's a second, it doesn't matter. You're safe. You're good. And at that point, I think it was like, okay, let's get in a few last shots. And so this is when he amped things up. And especially, I, I think one of the ironies, like, and even today, like, uh, the for the 50th anniversary, I did a lot of media. And, and so I went and I looked at, at um, a lot of the official sources. And I looked at the State Department website on the Christmas bombings and the peace treaty. And like the official story of the Christmas bombings is that that damaged the North Vietnamese so much that they came back to the peace table and made concessions. Um, actually, John Negroponte, who is nobody's idea of a dove, said that the Christmas bombings forced us to accept our own concessions. And essentially, that's what it did, because the Christmas bombings were so widely condemned globally. Nixon's popularity at home plummeted. He had won the election, blown out, governed. By January of 1973, he's down to 39% popularity. Globally, everybody condemned, you know, the Soviet Union and the Chinese said, hey, this is going to, uh, uh, this is jeopardizing detente, you know, what you're doing in Vietnam, you know, because they had kind of backed off supporting the Vietnamese, right? The, 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 the Chinese and the Soviet Union have. Um, neutral countries, European countries, uh, people like Olaf Palma and Billy Braun condemned the U.S., compared them to Nazis, you know. I mean, there was just this massive global firestorm. And Nixon at that point realized, you know, he had no choice. I mean, by that time, too, he's probably an alcoholic. This is when, you know, stories came out where, you know, Kissinger is basically running the country because Nixon is drunk half the time and he's losing it. He's hallucinating and talking to Abe Lincoln's portrait and things like that. You have a guy who's like, I mean, we talked about Trump, who I think is probably, you know, but but, but Nixon, too, was was out of it by the end, you know, had nuclear codes. Right. Um, and so. uh, uh in those final stages, yeah, I think it's it's striking, you know, but the State Department basically takes that line, right? But the reality is, um, clearly, those last several months definitely could have been avoided. But I would argue, you know, with, with a sincere effort, the last, you know, the Vietnamese, clearly, by Tet, for certain, even maybe before that, but certainly by Tet, the Vietnamese weren't going anywhere. I mean, Tet proved that they weren't failing, right? We can argue lots and lots about what Tet actually meant or what it, what it really did. But I don't think you can disagree that like Ted showed that America's claims to success were, were, were false at best of lies, more likely than not. So after that, you know, you're, the United States doesn't have a whole lot of leverage other than renewed and continued destruction, right? And that's what it does. You know, linebacker can be the madman theory, right? Kissinger would say, well, you know, I want to get this war, but Nixon's so fucking crazy. Excuse me. Nixon's so crazy. He's a madman. What are we going to do? You know? And I mean, the Vietnamese made the concessions there. They did. I mean, the North Vietnamese made concessions, but they weren't going to, they weren't going to negotiate, like leave, make their troops leave. 
you know, nobody would. And they certainly weren't going to allow the political alignment in the South. They weren't going to just like say, yeah, the, the Southern government's still in charge. They said, they lost the war. You know, people who lose the war don't get to stay in charge, except in the American South, you know, after 1865. But <laughs> so, um, so that it's, you know, it's, it's, a uh, it's, it's, a it's, I, I kind of laughed and I shook because it's really a horrific tale, right? Of, of, you know, continuing a war and destroying, you know, a country even more. I mean, the, the linebacker bombings and the Christmas bombings, horrific. I mean, if, if the United States had not intervened uh, in, in April, uh, when the Easter offensive took off, I mean, that war would have been over not long after that because the, the Vietnamese with the path just slicing through. You mentioned earlier, I forgot, uh, you talked about the Southern Army. I mean, they had series like desertion, morale, and their own issues, right? You know, a lot of these guys, why are they fighting, right? So you had significant, I forget the numbers, like 20,000 a month, 30,000 a month, huge numbers of armed desertions as well. I mean, by, you know, in the 70s, the Arvin was like the third or fourth biggest army in the world. The Army of Southern Vietnam was the third or fourth biggest army in the entire world. So, yeah, it was a, I mean, it was, you know, I kind of get fired up when I start thinking about it. It was such a cataclysmic disaster that, you know, I think we've forgotten about it. We've kind of, you know, made it kind of nostalgic. Oh, look at the music or look at the movies or that kind of thing. When it was just so destructive in so many ways, it destroyed a country. It destroyed many countries, Vietnam. I mean, uh, Campuchia and Laos as well, right? Helps bring the Khmer Rouge to power. In Laos, there are still 80 million unexploded little bombies in Laos. 80 million. Every year, like a thousand people die or lose their legs in Laos today in 2023, right? There's a great group called Legacies of War working on that. So it destroys these countries. It does intense damage to, well, 58,000 Americans are killed. Intense damage to who knows how many other Americans who are there. It divided the country badly, you know, created these kind of cultural divides that are still maybe even worse today. Um, it clearly changed the way, you know, wars were fought, you know, uh, you know, most of the stuff that the United States did was, was outlawed, but you know, nobody cared. There was no consequence for it. So I really can't understate just like, you know, how, how to me cataclysmic it really was, how tragic it was for, for everyone who was involved. Well, Bob, I think that's a, uh, that's a good spot for us to, uh, to wrap it up for today. I, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to come and chat with me. I absolutely, we will, we will have you back again and talk more about, uh, more about Vietnam. Um, can you, uh, share with the, the podcast listeners about your podcast and where they can follow your work? Yeah. Um, it's green and red podcast, Scott Park, and you can just, uh, Google us or go on YouTube, green and red podcast. Or do my name, you know, whatever it'll, it'll come up. We've had some really good shows. We've done a lot with like John yeah, Vietnam. And I've been really involved in the JFK conspiracy thing with a lot of these people. I debated Oliver Stone, screenwriter. I talked to Jeff Morley, talked to Seymour Hirsch today about the Nord Stream pipeline. Um, and then I also have a blog at, uh, it's, uh, afflict the comfortable, which is one word, afflict the comfortable. Yeah. It comes from that old line. Uh, what was the job of, uh, I think it came from a newspaper guy he said our job is to, uh, Comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable or something like that. So it's afflict the comfortable one word dot a word. And, uh, you know, I have some stuff I've been writing there. I actually wrote a piece. I, I'm sure I'm going to get blowback on this. I just wrote a piece about Jimmy Carter, who I admire the hell out of. I think he's an inspirational guy, but, you know, I think it's also important to know what he did as president, which was, not so, yeah. was not so admirable, right? Um, in fact, he, you know, he encouraged China to invade Vietnam in 1979. So, um, so there's a lot of stuff on there. But yeah, I just do a Google. I've written some stuff on Vietnam. 
but, uh, you know, I love talking and, and this is great. I love talking to people who, you know, have kind of, uh, a, a knowledge of this and interest in it that, you know, I mean, a lot of interviews, just people like, you know, I interview a lot of people. I don't really know much about what they're doing. So sure, when you're talking sure. to somebody who has the same kind of, you know, thing, it's, it makes for really, really great. This was fantastic. And, you know, I can't wait to talk to you, uh, you know, to kind of have you on the other side of the microphone as it were. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to that as well. I, I wanted to mention, I really like your tagline for the red and green podcast, the media for scrappy, scrappy radicals. Yeah. I think that's just, that's wonderful. So yeah. Yeah. We need people to be scrappy. I mean, it's tough out there. You can't be too delicate. You know, they're, they're that's playing it. for, you know, they are, scrappy. they are. No, we play, we play for keeps and yeah. it's, it's important that people have it because, you know, Americans have such, such ignorance about war. You know, we've only, you know, if, if somebody ever, you know, happened to maybe they watched platoon one time or something and they've, you know, it, yeah. it just comes out of, out of that. But I'm grateful to know that there is a, a much wider community of people who do care about this history and really, truly dive into how horrifying it was for the people that, that lived there. I, uh, um, I haven't got the chance to mention this to him. I hope I get to talk to him again, but we, we had Oliver Stone on oh, wow. a, a couple of times way, uh, quite a while ago and, the of his Vietnam trilogy of, of, uh, you know, there's platoon and then born on the 4th of July and then heaven and earth. And I absolutely, I will, I will die on this hill that, that heaven and earth was the best of the three. Oh, okay. I, I felt because yeah. it, it really told the full circle of, of things in that way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it included Americans and what they had been through, but especially, but it stuck with someone who had actually seen it, who had been born there mm -hmm. and coming and coming full circle. Yeah. And I just thought it was, it was horrifying, but it was also beautiful in a lot of ways. And, um, but that's, that's our mission. That's, that's what yeah. we want to do is we want yeah. to be able to identify with, with those folks, because, yeah. you know, even though that, you know, like for draftees, certainly they didn't get the choice, but lots of other guys chose to you know, said, I'm, 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 I might do this. And especially today with the all volunteer force, everybody chooses. It's, it's not a, you know, I, I, maybe we'll have a draft again at some point, but it's, it's, uh, you know, it, it very much people today choose to go and, and to yeah. orders and hurt innocent people and do all those things. Yeah. And it's, and that's the, that's the thing we want to change. Maybe, maybe I'm fantasizing. I often thought if there was a draft, no deferments, everybody's kids was eligible. They would never go to work, you know? Senators, kids, you know, bankers, kids, Hollywood kids, all of them, everybody's out. Yeah. I, I, I agree with you. Absolutely. I think because it, because it, it has to be, is that there has to be that connection between the population and what their government is doing. And if we're not willing to take those steps, then, you know, because that, that was something that helped bring the war to a close Yeah, for the Iraq war that, you know, or Afghanistan mm -hmm. or any, anything post nine 11, that wasn't even a question, you know, it's just, we send them because they signed up to yeah. be sent wherever. So Bob, thank you. Thank you for thank your you, time. Henry. Thank you, Henry. I really yeah. appreciate it. I, I like what you're doing here. I can't wait to talk to you some more. All right. Really great. Thanks. Uh, take care and we'll talk again soon. Thanks. Money is tight these days for everyone. Penny pinching to make it through the month often doesn't give people the funds to contribute to a creator they support. So we consider it the highest honor that folks help us fund the podcast in any dollar amount they're able. Patreons is the main place to do that, and for supporters who can donate $10 a month or more, they will be listed right here as an honorary producer, like these fine folks. Fahim Shirazi, James Obar, James Higgins, Eric Phillips, Paul Appel, Julie Dupree, 
Thomas Benson, Janet Hansen, Daniel Fleming, Michael Karen, Ren Jacob, Howard Reynolds, Rick Coffey, Scott Spaulding, Spooky Tooth, and the Status Quo Podcast. However, if Patreon isn't your style, you can contribute directly through PayPal at paypal.me forward slash Fortress on a Hill. Or please check out our store on Spreadshirt for some great Fortress merch. We're on Twitter and on Facebook.com at Fortress on a Hill. You can find our full collection of episodes at www.fortressonahill.com. Skepticism is one's best armor. Never forget it. We'll see you next time. I will know.